So welcome to any of our newcomers who maybe are joining Theology on Tap this summer series for the first time. We're super glad you're here. This um, Theology on Tap summer series is a four-part series based on the gospel passage in Luke on the road to Emmaus. So the first week we heard Cindy Black talk about finding Christ in chaos. Last week, the talk was on finding Christ in suffering, and tonight we're going to hear about finding Christ in scripture before our final talk next week on finding Christ in the breaking of the bread, and then we're going to go ahead and open in prayer. So instead of having everybody read along this prayer with me, I always find that it's a little bit easier to pray if you just follow along with the words and kind of silently pray along so that we're not focusing on saying the words, we're focusing on praying the words. So I'll go ahead and lead us through this prayer, and I invite you all to kind of read along and silently pray with me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Stay with us, Lord for it is almost evening. Lord, this was the insistent invitation of the two disciples journeying to Emmaus on the evening of the day of the resurrection. They addressed these words to you, the wayfarer, who had accompanied them on their journey. Weighed down with sadness, they never imagined that this stranger was you, their master, risen from the dead. Yet they felt their hearts burning within them as you spoke to them and explained the scriptures. Light of the world, unlock the hardness of our hearts and open our eyes. Amid the shadows of the passing day and the darkness that clouds our spirits, O divine wayfarer, bring a ray of light which will rekindle our hope and lead our hearts to yearn for the fullness of light. Stay with us, we plead. As you agreed to the disciples' request, please agree to ours. Stay with us. Soon afterwards, Jesus, your face would disappear from the sight of the disciples. Yet you, the master, would stay with them, hidden in the breaking of the bread, which had opened their eyes to recognize you. Jesus, may we learn to recognize you in our midst and become aware of your presence in every circumstance, particularly in the gift of the scriptures and of the Eucharist. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so tonight I have for you guys a real treat because... One of my favorite humans in the world is going to be speaking to you tonight. His name is Dr. Thomas Alexander Giltner, and I'm going to invite him to come on up as I go ahead and introduce him to you. Okay, so I got, a, I got an official bio, so I'm going to read the official bio. Dr. Thomas Alexander Giltner is an assistant professor of theology and the director of the Assisi Program for Discipleship and Leadership at the University of St. not Thomas, Francis. (laughs) I reverted um, at the University of St. Francis, where we are right now. He works on biblical theology, the relationship of faith and reason, and Trinitarian metaphysics. He is also a founding member of the No Scotsman is a Real Fallacy Society. When asked what part of the Summa is his favorite, Dr. Giltner replied, the part Thomas didn't write. He and his wife, Mary Beth, reside in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and have a criminally adorable son, named Jack, as well as a dog named Strider, who does not live up to his namesake. So, Dr. Alex Giltner, I'm going to invite you to come on up, and we are going to do a second round of introductions. So, move this out of the way for a second. And Alex is a dear friend of mine, and so I thought it would be fun um, for you guys today, because one of my favorite things about Alex is that his opinions are sometimes strong, almost always strong, and usually amusing. So I created a game today to introduce you to him, and it is called Tell Me How You Really Feel. So this game is played as you would expect, 
I'm going to make a statement and you're going to tell you how I tell you how I really feel. <laughs> there we go. They don't give PhDs to uh, just anyone. So, all right. So it's super easy. I'm going to make a, it's either going to be a, a statement um, or just a subject. And you tell me what you feel about it. So we're going to rapid fire. Okay. Tell me how you really feel. Water without bubbles. Uh, why? <laughs> the best pizza is from New York. Mm, no. Where's it from? St. Louis. <laughs> Cats. Eh. Eh. Losing an argument. Uh, doesn't happen. So. <laughs> Mispronunciations of foreign words. <laughs> Star Wars is the worst series of movies ever made. You can go and die. Cardigans are sweaters. This is a long, no, this is a long standing debate. And uh, I'm just going to say no, but there's a lot more that could be said about that. They're not just sweaters, no. They're not just sweaters. Onions. Uh, if they're cooked. Mushrooms. Gross. <laughs> Condiments ruin good food. That is the dumbest thing you've ever said in your life. Cigars. Love them. The best proof of God's goodness is bacon. That or the ontological argument. <laughs> the sentence, I did good. F. <laughs> Air conditioning. So good. <laughs> Liturgical dancing. Uh, gross. <laughs> Jesus. Man, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> okay, last one. Catholics don't need to know scripture. Oh, man. Uh, the, hmm. Uh, wrong. Okay, so I'm going to actually hand this mic over to Alex right now, and he's going to extrapolate upon the thesis that Catholics uh, do actually need to know Scripture, and he's going to break that open in encountering Jesus in the Scripture. So I'm going to hand it over to him. Well, thank you very much. Um, this is, I think, probably a pretty new crowd. I, I spoke at Theology on Tap um, a few years ago. I don't know if any of you guys would have been here for it or not. Um, scripture. Um, so yeah, so, uh, I'm here to talk to you tonight about scripture and, um, the, the, the title of this talk is, I believe, finding, uh, Christ in the scriptures. And so it would seem like, uh, you know, the most obvious thing is like, let's do some Lexia Divina, Let's open the Bible and talk about how it's God's love letter to our baby souls and how um, we just love Jesus is our boyfriend and we just want to go meet him in the scriptures. Now, there's a time for that. Um, and I think that we, because it's it's in many ways easy, that's the time that that's usually what we do with that. We turn it into just this personal devotional thing. And I think that if you want to understand how the scriptures reveal the Christ, who is the word of God made flesh, then you have to first let the word tell you who Christ is, rather than you sitting down and telling the word who the how, many, how often do we sit down and read the Bible and it turns out Jesus 
thinks everything we think, too. Isn't that incredible? He agrees with us about everything. That's highly unlikely. So there is great goodness in reading Scripture devotionally. But if you do it without an understanding of what Scripture is and what Scripture is doing, because Scripture is not just uh, God's love letter to us. It is also not just um, boring histories, genealogies, and letters from the past. Scripture is actually the unfolding of the entire logic and reality of history itself. Contained within Scripture is the reality of the entire cosmos, not just God's intention for it in the beginning, and not just as it is now, but as it will be consummated. It is no accident that Scripture ends right where it begins, with a tree of life right there in the middle of a divine paradise. And so, when we're talking about what does it mean to be the Christ and how the scriptures reveal Christ, it isn't just revealing something about our feelings. What, is, what does Christ mean? Does that, this is not a rhetorical question. What does Christ mean? Does anybody know? I know you know, Monica. I know you. Some of you I know know. Yeah. The anointed one. That is awesome. Um, <laughs> that is, so you went right to the right answer, which is not normally what a group does when I ask that question. Um, so you really cut off a lot of good jokes I was going to make. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, no, that, very well done. Very well done. Um, so a lot of people will say savior, they'll say redeemer. Um, they'll say, wasn't it his last name as if Jesus was born to Joseph and Mary Christ who lived in Nazareth on Sycamore Lane. Um, no, the Christ, Christ means, Christos means anointed one. And it's the same root that we get chrism from, okay, when you're anointed with oil. And does anybody know what the Hebrew word for Christ is? Christos. Anybody? No, that's, that's Jesus' name, Yeshua. Yeah, which means Yahweh saves. But Messiah, very good. It's actually Mashiach in Hebrew, Mashiach. So the reason why Jesus is the Christ, the Christ, the Son of God, is Christ is a title. It is a title about, uh, is a title indicating a person who plays a particular role in history and accomplishes a particular activity and action on behalf of the divine will. Okay? So, in the time of Jesus surrounding, like before and after, this, this usually people don't realize this, Jesus was not the first nor the only person to claim to be the Messiah. Okay, Actually, dozens of people in the years surrounding Jesus, it was a very tumultuous time at the time that Jesus was alive. Uh, well, <laughs> he's still alive. Um, but the time that Jesus was living on our earth um, and performing his initial mission and ministry. And um, there's a reason why it was very tumultuous. And it was centered around this idea of Messiah, of Christ. 
And most people have not heard of many of the people who had claimed like Jesus to be the Christ. So I'm assuming, I'm assuming most of you have never heard of Judas the Galilean. You might have heard of him, Mike, but he's a scripture scholar and he's uh, trained by Protestants. So he, he really knows this Bible. Um, I heard a, somebody told me, uh, some, who was this? I think there was a, a, a metaphor. Catholics actually know scripture a lot better than they're given credit for. But uh, Protestants know scriptures like postmen know addresses. They know like, like chapter, verse, bup, 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 here it is. Catholics know more like the kids that play in the neighborhood, you know, like, I don't know where it is exactly, but if you go like two, two blocks down that way, there's a red fire hydrant and, if, and, and you'll see a flag in the door and that's where Mrs. Brown lives. So anyway, um, but... <laughs> Um, I'm having trouble keeping track of all the things that I'm saying. So I kind of lost my train of thought because I wanted to tell that really good analogy. Anyway, um, Jesus Christ, many people probably haven't heard of Judas the Galilean. You probably have never heard of Simon Bar Kokhba. Okay. Um, who, if you look at history, just from history standpoint, probably was a much bigger figure at the time of his reign and death in 135 AD than Jesus was. In fact, Jesus was utterly unlike anything that anybody really thought Messiah would be. And so it is stands to question why he's the one we remember. Why, with all the people who actually claimed to be Messiah and actually like one at least one led an entire revolt and the Romans sieged the city of Jerusalem for three years before destroying it utterly. Why do we remember this carpenter from Nazareth who died? Why? When the disciples are walking to Emmaus and the wayfarer, I love that prayer we pray, that was beautiful. The wayfarer, our wayfarer, comes along and he says, hey guys, why are you so glum? And they say, are you the only one in Jerusalem who has not heard? And then they say something really great. And if you know Greek, it's really, really great because it's either in the imperfect or the pluperfect tense. I think it's in the pluperfect tense. But what they say basically amounts to, there was this man, Jesus, we had thought that he was the hope of Israel, which means that they no longer think it, all right? Why? Why do they no longer think that? Whoever has eyes to see, let them see. So, a history lesson. Usher Benny Paul, you guys know who I'm talking about, right? Asher Benny Paul, the last great king of Assyria. I think, yeah, you, you've heard of him. Um, the last great king of Assyria died in 631 AD, and the greatest empire the world had yet seen crumbled in less than 20 years later. 
Um, it was in six around 612 BC that the Babylonians finally said, we've had enough. No more Assyrians. Assyrians were bad news. They were really brutal. Assyrians were very, very brutal. Um, and they were known for, if you opposed them, they would um, basically, they would do horrific things to make you not want to do that. Um, they were bullies. And Babylon, they said, well, we want to be the bullies now. And so they did. And they overthrew Assyria, and they took over most of, but not the entire, uh, Neo-Assyrian Empire, and it became the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Now, during the entire reign of Assyria, Israel, which was the northern kingdom, had fallen. And basically, if you look like if you look at a map of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, it's fantastic because it's like the whole thing is all Assyria except for this little bit of space right here. And that's where Judah's been sitting. Judah's been kicking it in Palestine, holding out against the Assyrian Empire. But it's not going to last long. After uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the second ruler of the Babylonian Empire, knocks on the door. He says, I'd like Jerusalem to be mine. Stop having it be yours. And the Jews say, no. And so uh, he says, okay. And so he uh, sieges, breaks in, takes their king Jeho Jehoiakim, Jehoiakin, and uh, deposes him and sends him off to Babylon, which is pretty normal, um, and installs a new king, Zedekiah, who's like in his 20s, I think. He's young. And he limps along for another, mm, there's arguments about which, how long, but maybe about 12 years, 11, 12 years. And he starts to think, well, maybe I could, you know, be a big boy and put my big, pants, big boy pants on and have a fight with Babylon and throw them out. And so he tries it, and the Babylonians say, all right, we've had enough. All right, this is 586, probably, B.C. And so they go, and they utterly destroy Jerusalem. They destroy its walls. They destroy its temple. Okay? They, they throw every brick to the ground. Um, and then they take Zedekiah. Sorry, I'm not trying to be, like, obnoxious, but this is what they did. They took Zedekiah and they slaughtered his sons before his eyes, and then they poked his eyes out and then led him off to Babylon with all of the uh, aristocratic class and basically destroyed Jerusalem. Now, there has been few events in the history of, I think, anyone that have been more devastating than this. If you read Psalm 137, it's not the most devotional psalm. It's the psalm that begins, by the rivers of Babylon, we hung up our harps and wept. For they said, sing us songs of Zion, but how can we sing of you, Zion, when Jerusalem is no more? Hey, Jews, Sing us some of those happy Jew songs. No, we can't, we can't do that. How can we do that? Jerusalem has been destroyed. Then it ends with perhaps one of the most chilling verses in the entire Bible. Blessed is the man who takes your babies, Babylon, and dashes them against the rocks. You see, 
Israel had come to the, the, the world in, in the ancient Near East, the, the, the way they kind of they viewed the cosmos, uh, the, the heavens and the earth as a, an intertwined reality and that gods chose peoples. And when peoples fought with each other, their gods were actually fighting, too. And so in the ancient Near Eastern mind, if one group came and destroyed you, that meant that their God defeated your God and was better than your God. Okay. And so for the Assyrians, this was Asher. For the Babylonians, it was Marduk. And so when Marduk destroys Jerusalem, the idea is for many Israelites that Yahweh actually has been defeated and maybe even completely vanquished forever. His temple is destroyed. Temples were where gods lived when they came to earth. All right. So in their mind, the God who had chosen them, many Israelites' minds, the God who had chosen them had been defeated by another God, and their entire identity was destroyed. In fact, this would be so, usually a people never would culturally survive an event like this. So for example, when the Israelites were destroyed by Assyria in the north about 200 years earlier, that was it. They're gone. That's where the, the lost 10 tribes of Israel went. They went everywhere else. They stopped being Israelites. That's usually what happened. It's a cultural assimilation. Then when this happened, though, this is one of the cool. So historians say that you should never say something like this never happened before. And historians usually say that right before they're going to tell you that something happened that never happened before. And I'm going to tell you that the Jews of Judah, when they were destroyed by Babylon and their God was defeated and the temple and city was destroyed, they did something absolutely amazing. And it's the reason why nobody's probably in this crowd even heard of Marduk or Tiamat, unless you play Dungeons and Dragons. But everybody has heard of Messiah. The Jews got together, and they came to this conclusion that Yahweh had not been defeated. He actually was the creator God and could not be defeated by another God. So then how could Israel, his chosen people, have been defeated if he had not been defeated? Well, he must have been punishing us, chastising us. Why? Well, because somebody sent me a really great meme um, that said basically the Old Testament, and it showed Steve Carell, I don't know what movie from, and it just says, it's like one of those two shots, and it says, you cheated on me when I specifically asked you not to. That's basically the history of Israel and her God. That's what Yahweh says all the time. You have one main rule. You got a lot of rules, or like 626 of them. But you got one main one. Don't worship other gods. And Israel would say, yeah, absolutely. But maybe you worship another God? No, don't. Okay, definitely, we won't. But also, Baal has a really good thing going on the top of these hills. No, I said don't do that. Yeah, but have you seen the Asherah poles? They're nice. Okay, so this is, this is Israel. And so... They go and they look back at their history and they say, no, actually, Marduk didn't defeat Yahweh. Yahweh is punishing us because he gave us a law. He made us his people. We are supposed to worship him and we didn't. 
We didn't do that right. And so what they do, they do three basic things, okay? Basically, the Israelites, and this is amazing. This has not happened before. They decide not only are they not going to assimilate, they're going to become even more who they are than they've ever been before. And they decide three things. One, or three things happen, really, in the reform. Not just three things, but these three things, okay? Um, They say, never again. We will never worship another God but Yahweh again. And we are never going to fail at keeping his law again. And so they decide, well, if we're going to do that, then we need to have the correct record of how God has communicated to us throughout these ages. And so, and this happens under the Ezra reforms, especially. They start gathering all of the um, written tradition and basically putting it together into what we would now call the Old Testament, okay? Not that it hadn't been there. They had these scriptures, but they weren't all brought together into this one codified reality. And so they bring them together, and they start to read them, and then they're matching their experience of reading it and seeing how they've been unfaithful and all of these things. And I promise I am going to talk about the road to Emmaus and Jesus eventually. Okay. We're getting there. We're getting there. All right. Just calm down. So anyway, so um, as they're looking through the scriptures and they're starting to understand why this is happening to them and who they are in relation to Yahweh, their God and everything, this figure starts to emerge. And he's been there since the beginning. He's been all throughout the Old Testament, what we call now the Old Testament, their scriptures, there's this figure that God kept saying, I'm going to send. I'm going to send this figure because I'm not going to abandon you, Israel. You screwed it up, but that won't be the end. I'm going to redeem you. And you'll know that I'm going to redeem you when the one who comes in the name of the Lord, whom I will send you, comes to you. and performs this redemption. And this chosen one, this special person, this anointed one, this Mashiach, you got to do that, Mashiach, okay? This Christos, this anointed one, is going to save you, Israel. Now, this becomes very important to them because after the Babylonians, it's the Persians. And then after the Persians, it's the Macedonians, or we would probably say the Greeks. Alexander. He was Macedonian. He wasn't Greek. Okay? He just really, really, really liked Greek stuff. He had all his Greek toys, and he liked to play with them. Um, man, I'd love to talk about Alexander for a second, but we can't. We don't have time. We don't have time. Okay? So, after the Macedonians, though, then you've got basically these four generals who are kind of Greeks, basically. All right. And then after that, you've, and then, and then among them, you've got the Seleucids who are in control of Israel. And then they have this big fight with the Seleucids under Antiochus IV. There will be a quiz later. And they get their independence for like 20 seconds. And it's amazing. Um, and they start to reform their society, and then two people get into a fight over who's going to be in charge. This is a really brushstroke history, by the way, too. So, like, I'm, I'm going over a 
Well, you, you can't be shaking your head at me, Mike, because... Okay, okay, all right, all right. So, so they get into a big fight, and then they do uh, what um, people always do and always regret. They say, well, we know who can sort this out, the Romans. And so they go to the Romans, and they say, we need you to tell us who's going to be in charge. Now, at this point, Rome is big, big, hot stuff. In fact, when the Seleucids were going to invade Egypt, this is one of my favorite stories, uh, Antiochus goes with his entire army, and he crosses into Egypt, and he looks across the desert, and there's just one dude sitting on a horse, and he's got a standard in his hands, and it's of a big eagle, and it says SPQR. Bonus points. What is SPQR? Oh, almost perfect. Rome. Rome. But yes, very good. The Senate and the people of Rome. And so Antiochus rides up, and it's this, this, this general named Gaius, and, 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 and Gaius says, uh, hey, buddy, what you doing? And Antiochus says, I'm going to uh, try to conquer Egypt. And, uh, and Gaius says, are you sure about that, sweetheart? And Antiochus said, maybe, I don't know, I was thinking about, it's, it's, a, it's a cute country, I was going to conquer Egypt. And uh, Gaius says, uh, now, you, you really want to do that? Because we've put Egypt under Roman protection. And, and Antiochus says, I need to think about it. And so Gaius says, great. And he gets down off of his horse, and he takes a standard, and he draws a line in the sand around Antiochus's horse. And he says, by the time you leave that circle, you better have decided if you want to go to war with Rome or not. And Antiochus says, And he leaves. So by this time, Romans are bad news. And uh, some people say that's where we get the phrase line in the sand. I don't know. But um, so the Jews, they go and they go to Romans. They're like, we want you to choose who's going to be in charge of Jerusalem. And they're like, we would be happy to do that for you. In fact, just call us the mediators. What do you got going on here? And so they send uh, Ptolemy, right? Is it Ptolemy? Or is it Pompey? It's Pompey. Yeah. Uh, they send Pompey and he says, and he gets there and they're like, okay, now do your talent show. And they do a talent show. And um, the one guy is working real hard to show why he should be in charge of Jerusalem and Israel. And the other guy's working real hard and he's doing, he's, 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 uh, he's passing the geography tests and he's, he's juggling and he's doing all the cool stuff so that he should be in charge. And Rome says, this is great. It's a hard choice, but I think it's going to be us. We're in charge, sweeties. Thank you for playing. And so then they leave a garrison there and they say, now you're a vassal state. And so what all this amounts to is that from the period of the exile up into we're now finally hitting the first century, Israel has been under the control of another kingdom. She has not been free again. So in Israel's mind, the sign of her oppression and captivity and exile is being controlled by a, uh, a country, uh, a nation, a kingdom, an empire that does not know Yahweh and uh, sometimes even interferes with their ability to worship Yahweh. And so what they start to think the Messiah is, Mashiach, is that he's this warlord conqueror guy who's going to come down and he's going to kick everyone's patukases and he's going to throw out the Romans and the Persians and whoever, 
and make Israel the super awesome great nation that she kind of was maybe a little bit during the right towards the end of the uh, the Bronze Age collapse. Um, that's not important. What's important is that's what they think Messiah is. They see Messiah as this warlord conqueror. Now, there are other interpretations floating around too, but that's the main one. The main one is Messiah is going to come and free us from captivity. And he's going to be, he's going to be large and in charge. And his name is Marge. That's from Pee-wee Herman's Big Adventure. Large Marge. Um, and he says, uh, and they say, yeah, Messiah, he's gonna be, he's gonna be bad news for everybody who's not Israel. He's going to, he's going to absolutely clean house. And we are going to be glorious Israel again. And everybody's going to come and say, wow, Israel, you're, going to, you're just so great. And we're going to say, yeah, we know. Okay. And so this is whom they're expecting. And all the messiahs generally follow this. All the messiahs generally follow this, this kind of thing. Now, this starts to help understand why if you read the gospels, you read the gospels, right? Like you do that. It's important. I'm going to tell you, it's pretty important. I, I'm always impressed. Yeah, I'm a professor here, so I get a lot of students, and I'm always impressed with how many of them think they know Jesus, but they don't read the Gospels. It's pretty impressive to know Jesus and not read the sacred, infallible works that are about him. Okay? Anyway, that's an aside. Don't take it personally, unless you need to. Um, so. This starts to help understand why the disciples generally have no clue what Jesus is doing most of the time and why he's doing it. And they spend all their time not understanding what he's up to. And in fact, it seems to kind of annoy Jesus at times, which is weird, but it does. He'll say things like, how long do I have to suffer this adulterous generation? Or this is a bit of a paraphrase. How stupid can you possibly be if you don't understand what I'm talking about? Who is ever going to understand what I'm talking about? That is, that is not, that's not too far away from what he actually said in the Greek. Um, so, he does what nobody expected. He says he's Messiah. He actually says it. He kind of skirts around it a little bit, but towards the end, this whole idea about a messianic secret is ridiculous. He absolutely claims clear as day in many ways and towards the end of his life as baldly as you can, yep, that's me, I'm Messiah. And then he dies. And not just does he die, he dies in one of the most horrifying and humiliating ways you can possibly die Crucifixion, which was not invented by the Romans, but it was their favorite thing to do to make an example out of you to say, don't ever, ever, ever mess with the Romans. It's their favorite. It was really effective. In fact, uh, it was so painful that the word excruciating comes from excrucis, which means from the cross. Okay. So not only did this guy who said he was Messiah die, so not only did he not conquer or raise an army and do all the things Messiah is supposed to do, but he actually uh, dies in the most shameful possible way at the hands of the people whom he was supposed to destroy. 
right? So, yeah, we had thought he was the Messiah, the hope of Israel. Now, what does Jesus do? Well, he explains the scriptures to them. I want that to sink in, all right? Jesus, who just died, now risen from the dead, they don't know that, are walking along. They're saying, oh, our Jesus died. And this Jesus, whom they don't recognize, he doesn't say, ta-da! He doesn't even, for the longest time, even say, no, it's, don't worry, it's me, it's Jesus. He starts explaining the scriptures to them how the Messiah had to suffer and die. That's the way that he makes himself clear to them on that road. I would have, I would give just about anything to have been there and heard how he did that. Like, the road to Emmaus is one of my favorite stories. It's so damn good. And the, the, I just, mm, if I could have been there and just been like, yes, I want to hear Jesus open the scriptures up like that. Like, I don't know. I don't know what it'd been like, but that's his response. He opens the scriptures up to them. He explains them. These are Jews. These are people who know the scriptures very well. So what does he say? I don't know. But I think it would probably be something like reforming their expectations of who Christ, who the Christ is. You think Jerusalem's on fire? The world is on fire. The world is on fire. He who has eyes to see, let him see. So in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. They did a bad thing. You see, you've probably heard the gospel in various different ways, and it's some kind of version of like, you know, here's me or the world, and it's this terrible, beautiful place, and mostly it's me. And I'm going down life, and sometimes I do good things, and sometimes I do bad things, and then I'm going to get to the end, and hopefully I've done enough good things that'll outweigh the bad things so that I don't go to the bad place and I go to the good place, okay? Um, and that is uh, not false exactly. It's just, no, it's, it's mostly false. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. Um, and the reason why we reduce the gospel is, is because we don't understand how to think with the Bible the think in the biblical worldview. So in the beginning, God creates this, this beautiful world. And he creates these people who are made in his image, and he sets them in this place called Eden, which, yes, is described as between these four rivers in uh, Genesis, but it's also described elsewhere in the Bible as being like on top of a mountain, which if you know anything about the Bible, you know mountains are places where there's like revelation. And they actually did think that 
like gods lived in heaven. And so there's like mountains are this place where heaven and earth meet. And so by putting these these special beings that were both part of creation, but also part celestial and that they had this image of God themselves, they were made these priests of the world these priests, and they were there to tend the world and take care of the world and make it fruitful and good. And then they were deceived. They were deceived. And they failed this absolutely crucial test to complete their initiation into this cosmic priesthood. And so the powers of darkness overcame this beautiful world that belonged to God. And then if you read Genesis 1 through 11, it's basically just like the world starts off amazing and then this happens and it just goes to crap. And like each story gets bigger and greater. And so it starts off with, you know, Cain kills Abel. And then it's, um, you know, uh, Lamech says, I can kill 70 Seven people, because I'm awesome. Some people bragging about how awful they are. And then the flood happens. And then it's the Tower of Babel. And it's the point where the humans who were created to be God's priests on earth and to mediate the whole world properly to him are now (laughs) trying to build a tower all the way up to heaven so that they can usurp God and take his place. I mean, it's terrible. And so if you're reading it like like a good biblical, like, say, Jew in Jesus' time, what you're seeing is that, so the world was created, God created, Yahweh created all of it. He created all of it. He put Adam and Eve at the center, and they were supposed to be his expression of goodness from creation to creation. And they were deceived and then enthralled, uh, enslaved by these powers of darkness. And then they spiral out of control. But in this curse, God gives them what's called the Proto-Evangelium. He says, now there's going to be the seed of the woman that's going to come forth, and he's going to fight with the serpent, and he's going to crush the serpent's head, all the way back to the beginning, the first sign, Messiah. So then Abraham comes along, and you're like, is he really going to do that? Yeah, yeah, I am. Uh, and you got to understand, like, this is the whole world's going to crap, and then it says, God comes to Abraham. It's like as if he basically said, and so God went to Frank in New York. He just comes to some dude. And he says, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless everybody else. And so they go through and they, there's a train. So basically, He chooses this Abraham guy and he says, all right, so through you, I'm going to fix everything that went wrong. Now, why does he do this? Why does he do it? Because it has to be a human. Because if humans are the center, if they're the thing that, like they're they're the, the fulcrum around which the whole thing turns, they're the logic of the world, and they go bad, then they have to be the ones that get fixed. So, He chooses Abraham, they become this nation, and then they fall into slavery under Egypt. And what you see here is what's happening is a recapitulation of everything that happened in Eden is now happening in Israel. And God comes to them and saves them through this man, Moses, this special prophet that he raises up, this anointed one. And this man says, someday a prophet like me is going to come along, 
and finish what I've started. That's the best way I'll, I'll say it. So then we go through David, we go through, and basically Israel starts to understand themselves at the center of this, but what I think Christ starts to explain is, no, this doesn't go back just to Israel. This goes all the way back to the beginning. This goes back to Adam and Eve. This goes back to humanity itself. This is the cosmic reality that is being redeemed. And it is this fight between the powers of darkness and the powers of light. And Christ is set not just to save Israel and not just to save people, but to right all of creation from where it went wrong. Every single thing that went wrong, because that is the logic of creation itself. And so when Christ is opening the scriptures to these disciples, he is actually opening up the deep secrets of the cosmos itself. So this is like what Paul says in Ephesians that the mystery that was hidden from the foundation of the earth has been revealed. And God is teaching, this is amazing, by the way, God is teaching the cosmos, the manifold wisdom of God. In this action of the Christ, it's not just some guy who rose from the dead and deals with all the little problems of your sin. The Christ is the one who redeems the entire creation from what's gone wrong. And so what Christ is doing in teaching these disciples, he's opening up the scriptures to them, I believe, is he's reorienting them to see the world through biblical eyes. So why does that matter? The early Christians made people go through catechesis for like three years before they would let people into the church. Did you know that? Why did they do that? Well, because they understood that they lived in this pagan culture that didn't understand creation and the history of the world as it properly needed to be understood. And so they had to like reorient their entire worldview so that they could think like with the Bible, so that they could actually understand the mystery of who Christ was, because they couldn't properly receive him until they understood who he really was and how he is the answer from the beginning, and thus the logic of creation itself. It took a long time to do that. And I think that this has become very, very important again. We need to relearn how to think with the Bible because we have entered a moment in the culture where we are in a very similar place as the early Christians. Okay? The language of Christendom is dead has been kind of floating around Christendom is no more. I don't, that doesn't matter. What does matter is that we have gotten so far away from the biblical way of seeing that we don't know how to contextualize who Christ was when he came here and how that reveals who he is now. And so we focus so much on like Lexia Divina or all these things that are very, very personal, and that's great but not letting the scriptures teach us not just stories about Jesus or about Moses, but actually teach us how to properly view the world as it truly is, which is a fight between the powers of darkness and the powers of light whom Christ has won this final battle against. 
the scripture, if we want to encounter Christ, it's not just about knowing the scripture. There are many people who can name all the books of the Bible. Stacy can. I saw her do it. She did it before. Um, or uh, so did Alex. Don't leave Alex out. Not me. Different Alex. Um, or there's people who can yeah do chapter and verse or memorize every part of the Bible or whatever. Um, and that's not what it means to know the scriptures and know the Christ within them. Um, they're not just something you do with devotional time, like a missal or, or, a, or a prayer book. The scriptures are the unfolding of the very meaning of history itself. And why the earliest Christians didn't see Christ for who he was until he fully revealed it is because they didn't understand and so what Christ does when he, when, he, when he speaks to these two disciples, it says, the disciples say after he's gone that he opened, uh, he opened the scriptures up to us. The word is dionigo, which means basically he made a way through. Like the idea is it's, it's similar to like where we get the, uh, it's, it's how they think of what a thought is but basically that he pushed the scriptures through their minds. You don't have, <laughs> I know it's hot, but don't lose this. The intimacy that comes from Christ comes from knowing the scriptures so deeply that they push their way through your mind, that every thought is saturated with the cosmic story of what really happened and the world even with your best intentions will sometimes give you the wrong ideas about what's going on and so you'll think the messiah was supposed to be a conqueror or you'll think that the church is a place where we can just hide in shells of liturgy or in social justice or that um being a christian is just you know me like hanging out with jesus because he's my boyfriend and not actually encountering the Christ of the Bible. And so we need to have the scriptures open to us, up to us again and again and again. And so before, and not even before, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that. What I want to say is, as we're doing these very good things like Lexio Divina, I mean, I gave a talk on Lexio Divina just like a month ago or something like that at your uh, college crew. Yeah. Um, I'm not, those are not bad things. They're not. And, and learning how to pray with the scriptures and reading the scriptures, I say, I know I make fun of it, but yes, as God's love letter to us. But the scriptures are an objective expression, God's own revelation of why he created the world, what he created it for, what went wrong, and how Christ, who was always the, uh, always the object of creation, is its culmination, its redeemer. And so we cannot just look at little tiny bits of the Bible and memorize them or hear it on Sundays or at daily mass and not absorb the whole reality of it and expect to know fully the mind of Christ, whom Paul says we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. How can we have the mind of Christ if we do not understand the scriptures as the unfolding of the word made flesh? And so 
I love that you asked me the question at the beginning. Um, Catholics don't need to know the Bible. You can't be Catholic if you don't know the Bible. I don't know how else to say that. And it's not just about reading the Bible or knowing facts about the Bible. The Bible is the true history of the world. Can you imagine? Then put your Lord of the Rings caps on for a second. This is like sci-fi fantasy. Can you imagine if somebody came to you and said, so there's this book written in these ancient languages. And if you study this book, you will know the secrets of the universe, including why the universe exists at all and what it's for and what you need to do in it and how to reach the culmination of the entire cosmos with the rest of all of history and creation. And it's from this ancient people. You'd be like, give me that sword. What quest do I need to go on? This is a book from God. And so it is so telling to me that when the disciples don't know who they're talking to, he doesn't say, hey, I'm Jesus. He opens up the scriptures to them and he pushes them through their mind. And it says their heart, their heart, the word heart there is, plur, is, is not plural, it's singular. Hey, cardia. Cardia, where we get the word cardio, cardiovascular. Did not our heart burn? There's two disciples, one heart. I love that. As he pushed it through our mind. The scripture is the whole mystery unveiled. And the mystery at the center of it is Christ, who was foretold from the very beginning, who is there at the end. And so Siri's got some things she wants to say too. And it's still the same reality that the disciples were in 2,000 years ago. We're all disciples walking along the road and the world is throwing interpretations at us. And if we want to understand what really happened, what does Jesus say? You think the Christ is dead? Let me explain the scriptures to you, and you'll know why you should not have thought that. If you want to see the world rightly, know the scripture. And know the Christ, the word whom the scriptures reveal. That is what, there's so many, the road to Emmaus is such a great, uh, it's so good. It's so good. But there's, there's so many things. This is it's one of the best stories in all of scripture. But, but this key point right here. And so I don't, I, I know, like I figured when people heard the title of this talk or even saw the description that I wrote, um, they would think, oh, we're going to do Lexi Divina and blah, blah, blah. And, and that's all good. I don't want to say it's not. But we have to know the Bible like we know our own personal history. Like we know the story of our own lives because it has to be the entire backdrop for how we view the world today. And if we don't, we will miss Christ even when he's walking right next to us. So, all this has been, at the end of the day, 
a big advertisement for the Bible. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Alex, thanks so much for that presentation today. I feel like I have a, an undergrad degree and a master's in theology. And I, when I hear you talk, there's always these nuggets that kind of um, just help open up something I never thought about with the scriptures. And I've always appreciated that about you. But you know what I was thinking about when you were talking? So uh, this is the long story short is like two, maybe two or three years ago, um, I kind of went through a personal crisis in my life where I, I had kind of a period of maybe minor depression. I was really struggling spiritually. Like I just had a lot of spiritual angst and I was like going through a dark place with the Lord. And I had this conversation with my friend Alex and um, we're all hanging out. And I just kind of was walking through some questions I had. And Alex did this thing for me where he uh, was Jesus on the road to Emmaus for me, where he took the book of Job and he pulled out a line that was this interpretive key for understanding like the suffering of Job. And it just kind of in that moment, Christ spoke to me and it was through like your knowledge of scriptures. And I'll, I'll never forget that because it felt like a moment on Emmaus. So this is a little bit of a promo for if you feel like you don't know the biblical worldview, like what are you teaching this fall? Old Testament. So you can audit at the University of St. Francis. Um, and I would highly recommend it because you you can't hear one talk and like restructure your whole way of seeing the world. But you can take a course and it will significantly help. So I would highly recommend it if you're thinking, I didn't understand half what you're talking about. Um, one of Alex's gifts is really understanding the history of the Old Testament um, of like what's going on in the secular world and what's going on in the culture so that you can really understand like what is being said on, on a much deeper level and really open it. So again, thanks, uh, Alex, for your talk tonight. <laughs> um, and go ahead and open up those questions. I just want to say one real quick thing too. Like, do learn more, even if you don't take my class, because I left like half of the whole history of the Bible on the floor for you, because you would have hated me if I kept going. So there's a lot more to the story. What are the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls. So uh, there was a, uh, a, a community, uh, a kind of a radical Jewish community that lived outside of uh, Jerusalem, a little bit of ways in a place called Qumran. And uh, they, they, they were really kind of like similar to a monastic community. They, they lived together. Um, they, uh, it was all men and they would they had like different rituals and stuff like cleansing rituals and prayer times and all that. Um, and, uh, they lived quite radically, um, like their diet and stuff. And, uh, basically they had all of the scriptures including a few, uh, texts that, um, that were not as common, like the, the war scrolls and stuff. And, uh, there was a point where the Romans were coming and they got scared. Um, and so they buried them in these caves around the Dead Sea. And, um, they, the, the climate combined with, uh, this is testing my combined with like the salt in the air, maybe, I don't know, something about the climate really, um, kept these scrolls really well intact. And they sat there for a little over 2000 years until they were discovered by a shepherd boy in 1946, I believe. Um, and they do not 
do what a lot of people seem to talk about them doing as if there's like some secret Judaism or secret Gnostic. There were four Gnostics even. Um, so that doesn't even make sense. Like Dan Brown stuff. I, I don't know if that's a reference that even tracks anymore, but that kind of stuff is ridiculous. There's no like, there's no secret Dead Sea Scrolls in the Vatican with all the aliens or something like that. Um, but but what was important about it is, one, we got to learn, uh, you know, we're still learning more about how varied and 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 really uh, how different Judaism looked in different places and to different people and how they lived that out. But then also we learned that um, before the Dead Sea Scrolls, I mean, our earliest Old Testament manuscript because of the Jewish tradition of burning texts after they copy them uh, is like 1000 AD, I think, Isaiah something like that is an Isaiah text. And so we got all these texts that were from before Christ, before the time of Christ, and we matched them up and they're really, really, really close. So it gives us a sense that we actually can really trust the Old Testament in its transmission a lot because um, it fits with uh, texts that were before the time of Christ. So if you're looking to really dive into reading the scriptures like where would you suggest kind of like starting like if you want to read the bible like where do you suggest starting and how to go about that okay there's a lot of different ways that people can answer this question and they all have legitimacy uh, no they don't all have legitimacy but a lot of them do and if i knew you i might suggest different things um, like if I knew who you were and I knew kind of like what your knowledge level is and stuff like that. But um, I'm going to give generally an unpopular answer. I feel like people usually tell you to start with Romans or start, you know, with the gospel or something like that. Um, if you've never read the gospels, if you've never read a gospel all the way through, then just sit down and read the four gospels. After that, just start with Genesis and read the damn Bible. Um, I, the, some people say that that, you know, like, how are you going to tell someone to do that? And they're going to be confused. And there are parts that are confusing, but like, just read it and try to read it like a story, like a, like a one, like, it's not just a bunch of different episodes from history. It's a, an entire overarching story that is, has a beginning and middle and end and characters and plot and development. And so it's not just a bunch of different stories linked together. There is an entire narrative arc to the scripture itself, unfolding salvation history itself. And so the best way to contact, you can't understand little passages of the Bible in the Gospels or in the Epistles or in, in First or Second Samuel without contextualizing them within the whole overarching story. And I'm convinced that whatever Christ was doing when he was opening the scriptures up to them, this is part of it. And so to have a grasp of the whole Bible, yeah, there are parts like in the Minor Prophets where you're going to be like, I don't know what on earth I'm reading. Um, and there are tools to help with that. There's so many tools. There's commentaries and stuff. And then there's all these like Bible in a Year stuff now. Uh, Father Mike Schmitz, I think, is doing one that's like really popular. Um, and, and, and so there are plans. There are all kinds of ways. I don't want to make it sound like dieting. But like there are all kinds of ways to just read the Bible and not try to come up with some, you know, Kung Fu strategy to make it super simple. Like parts of it are hard and really hard to understand and parts of it are really disturbing. Uh, the Bible is not like 
it's 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 not Harry Potter. It's a really really intense book about real humans doing real things. Um, but yeah, I would say just read the Bible. Um, and if you read, I think like something around like three or four chapters a day, you can do the Bible in a year. So I don't know if somebody else might give you different advice, but that would be the advice I give you. All right. So as Catholics, we have sacred scripture and sacred tradition with the magisterium and the catechism and things like that. So how should we use those resources that we get from the church to really inform our biblical understanding? Well, it's, um, and I'm just like super, super aware of my Protestants right there back in the corner. Um, <laughs> hey, we Catholics are going to have a little conversation real quick, okay? So you guys just, you know, count sheep or whatever. Um, so uh, the church is the true interpreter of scripture. Um, and the teaching office of the magisterium is the um, apostolic um apostolically founded by Jesus and the apostles, um, overseers who have the authority and the um, deposit of the Spirit to ensure that the interpretation is correct. And so to read the scriptures outside of the context of the church makes no sense. Um, and that means reading it so that the, the, actually the catechism and Dei Verbum um, so catechism is basically quoting Dei Verbum, lays out three basic rules for reading scripture. Um, you need to read it within the whole of the story itself. You need to read it within the whole tradition. So we've got 2,000 years of, of, of commentators and, and theologians and doctors and, and, and uh, fathers who have helped us understand what these passages really mean. I was just having a conversation before this about the Song of Solomon. Or the Song of Songs. And if you read the Song of Songs purely just as a historical text, you'd think, oh, it's just a guy who's getting married and a gal talking about that. But we also know that, no, there's all this deep, rich stuff the Spirit has, has put there that discuss like God's relationship to his people, God's relationship to our individual souls. Um, and then I would say that if you don't know what a passage mean or you come to a passage that's difficult or contentious, like lots of people say different things, find out if the church has said anything about it. Um, and if she has, well, then she's right. And if she hasn't, then there's still room to talk as long as you're following under the rule of faith and the creeds and uh, proper uh, church teaching, then you're probably okay. But um, you cannot read... I, so I'll wrap it up by saying, again, you cannot read the scriptures in isolation from the life of the church. Um, and the church is, the, the scriptures are alive, first of all. It's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword able to, that's Hebrews 4. But um, the church is a living people. And this is part of why we as Catholics believe that while the fullness of revelation was given in Jesus, the church presents herself anew to generations. Every single new generation, the church presents herself fully anew, and the scriptures are part of that. And so you have to read them in tandem. Does that answer your question? Okay. Hey, thanks, Alex. Um, congratulations on the Pee Wee's Big Adventure reference, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Nobody here got that. Nobody. Yeah, I got it, though. I know so you did. You Large Marge. There you go. 
Um, hey, so I got a specific scriptural question for you. Uh huh. Okay, so in the road to in well, they're not on the road to Emmaus at this point. Jesus um, opens, uh, pushes the scriptures through their brains, right? <laughs> yes. um, and he and and he uh, says to them, "Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead." And you put some of those out here for us um, on the sheet. And then the second part, in that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Um, what do you think that that connects to in the wider biblical story? Like, what do you think Jesus was connecting that to? Um, I'm sorry, that's uh, in Luke 24, uh, verse 47, 46 oh, so and 47. This is, this is when he appears to the rest of the disciples. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, okay, so later you- in the day. Yeah, so, right, because they go back to Jerusalem because Emmaus is not that far, and they see the other apostles, and then he appears to them again. Yeah, so um, which part are you asking about? And I'm not trying to be pedantic. Like, are you asking about the repentance, forgiveness of sins being proclaimed, or the beginning from Jerusalem? As Jesus is unfolding the mm-hmm. the um, the story there, like, what is what do you... Yeah, yeah, no. Like, what do you think Jesus was connecting that to Absolutely. in the story? So... Uh, here I think and is like the book of Acts is so helpful here because if you read the book of Acts, you'll get how the apostles preach the gospel in various different contexts, but it always includes this command to repent. And it always includes some kind of statement that the world has been changed because Christ is in it now. And so um, the repentance isn't just a repentance from sin. It's a repentance from, so as you well know, repentance, the word repentance in Greek is metanoia, and that means to change one's mind. And this is kind of what I've been getting at the whole time with this entire talk, is that you have to, once you know who Christ is, you know that the world is fundamentally a certain kind of way and fundamentally not a bunch of other ways. Right. And so the world's always saying, here's the different ways that we can understand the world. And you've got all these different viewpoints. And the Bible is uh, a and, and the gospel is an actual real imagination that we are supposed to inundate into our minds. And so what we're repenting from um, and mind changing from is is an old way of viewing the world because Christ has revealed what the true meaning of the world really is. And so now that has to be proclaimed from all nations. And of course, it starts in Jerusalem for the reasons that I just talked about ad nauseum. And I will say, if you don't like hearing the whole history of the Bible, like that's how the, they preach in Acts. They say, okay, well, if you want to understand this, we got to start from the beginning. You know, this is what they do in Hebrews. So there is something so crucial to understanding the entire story. And I think it's because the Bible tells us what history really means. And if you understand then what history really means that that creation was created by a good god who made it good that we fell from that that our fall damaged creation in some deep fundamental way and that christ has defeated the powers of darkness and been made king over all of creation as as it is rightfully to be then that has to utterly change the way you understand and live your entire life And so the message is that the world was under the dominance of the powers of darkness. And this began when Adam and Eve gave their basically reign, their dominion over to the powers of darkness. I really do read the Bible this way. Um, And not to say it's not about sin. It's absolutely about sin. You can't 
but but what Jesus is doing is he presents himself throughout the Gospels, but especially in John, that he is invading the world. He is coming into an enemy place that has been taken by darkness, and he is reconquering it for the kingdom of God. And he is the new king, and everybody has to submit to the king. Um, and so that would be my read of it. We got to go proclaim that there's a king of the world. Sounds weird, but that is literally what we're told to do. It's in Matthew 28. If you're not evangelizing, start. You're kind of under orders by the king of the universe to do so. I know Catholics are a little, nah. no, that like you're, you're supposed to do that. You're supposed to be proclaiming that there is a good king. Anyway, anyway. All right, well, just let me just again say thank you, especially in this heat and everything, for listening to what I had to say. So, yeah, it's great. It's great to be here.